Let's, if we can, turn to Isaiah 7, and I might just again share with those of you that are visitors, if we have any today, that what we do is we go through the material being suggested for by the class and for the church, and so we cover that. Um, last, a couple weeks ago, I kind of covered it in too much detail. I think what I'm going to do is try to shorten these, and if nothing else you're noticing, we're getting more and more kids in the class, so I really want to make this somewhat kid-friendly, too. So we had some things about sheep and some other things, but we are going to spend just a few minutes looking at Isaiah chapter 7, 1 to 17, uh, break it down into three sections, and then we'll look at a couple of those Ask Kirby questions before we wind down for the day. On the top here, if you want to have kind of a summary of what we're going to talk about, it's that hope and security comes through God's promises, God's presence, and God's salvation confirmed in the Messiah. And the theme that we'll be looking at over the next couple of weeks is looking at the major prophets and what do they say about the Messiah. And most importantly, as we go along, I want to try to pull out some principles that you can apply to your day-to-day life. So that's kind of the plan here. And in the introduction, we see that here it brings us face to face with one of the best known prophecies in the Old Testament. And that is the prophecy of Jesus, God with us. His name will be called Emmanuel. So we'll look at that in just a minute. But we run into now a very interesting situation. If you look back, you can see in chapter 6, this is where Isaiah is actually transported into heaven and sees God in his holiness and says, holy, holy. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so the angels are proclaiming that. And this is after the death of King Uzziah. So now we come to King Ahaz, who is the son of Uzziah. And they're facing a time of fear and trouble as their enemies stand ready to destroy them. And here God reminds them of his covenant promises with them. Don't look to your human ability to solve the problem. Look to me. And also, of course, it is a reminder of God's salvation through the Messiah and how we can experience in our own lives everlasting peace. So turn with me, would, to Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Verse 2. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, and the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shook before the wind. And so here we have a situation where now you have this coalition of uh, both Israel and Syria, and they're in the midst of a national crisis. You can imagine if you lived in a world where you see armies in the distance and you hear that they want to march against you. And so here the question is, how can this southern kingdom of Judah stand against the combined forces of two different armies to give you a little bit of an idea and if you wonder if they're scared don't you love this line here the heart of the people shook as the trees in the forest shook before the wind we had some pretty good winds through here lately remember when the trees are shaking and knocking leaves out if you're shaking like this you ever been like that in fear uh, that is certainly the case so the question is where can Jerusalem in the midst of this turn in a time of trouble because they are finding now that these um, two armies are camped below Why 
why did they say below? Because Jerusalem is up above and they're camped below. But now, not only do they threaten them in terms of direct threat, but they also threaten their ability to actually do any trade because they can't make it to the coast uh, because Jerusalem is away from the coast. And so, in some respects, an army represents two threats. Number one, the possible threat of attack, but number two, the threat of eventually starving them out, almost like a siege, preventing them from being able to engage in trade. And so this is what they find themselves in, in this incredible, difficult set of circumstances. So what we see here is Isaiah does not address King Ahaz directly, but instead refers to what? The house of David. Let's put this in a bigger context. You know, there were some other kings before you, Ahaz. There are other kings that will be here after you are. But let's talk about the house of David. And I think it's a reminder that when things seem most difficult, most dire, Judah must look to God as the one who keeps his covenant promises. And so if you look on the screen here, I've given you kind of an application point. And that is that when we are tempted sometimes to trust in our own power, there is something greater than human authority. You know, most of us in this room have been Christians for a long time. And so because of that, we've probably had some times in our Christian life, our Christian walk, where, you know, if we had just depended on our own resources, our own abilities, we wouldn't have been able to get to where we were. There was a problem, there was a crisis, or there was a need for some level of success. And if we had done it in our own power, we wouldn't have succeeded. We wouldn't have survived. And so I think all of us in the room at one time or another probably can think of a time when we learn this lesson that if we're just depending on our own resources, we wouldn't be where we are today. And this is, I think, a reminder to them that here, right now, it looks really overwhelming when you have Syria and you have Israel coming against you. Don't look at the problems horizontally. Look at the answer vertically. Let's go on. And now we pick up in verse 3. And then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jezhub, your son. You know, next time they asked me here at Prestonwood to speak to the young marrieds, because I did this the other day, they're going to say, if you're looking for names for your children, uh, Shear Jezhub, wouldn't that be a great name? (laughs) No. (laughs) Anyway, that's her son, uh, by the way, there. Um, of um, Isaiah at the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the highway of the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. There are some great preaching sermons Uh, even Charles Haddon Spurgeon had a sermon about the the smoldering stumps of firebrands which if you think about this, that's like burning trash, you know, where Suzanne grew up you know, they didn't really have garbage trucks coming out you just burn the trash, you know, and you probably have traveled around seeing burning trash. And so some people have even said more recently, this is an example of where God does some trash talking, literally. <laughs> and by the way, if you know the Hebrew, there's actually alliteration in there, but we won't go on. Let me come on. From the stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the sons of Remaliah, because Syria and the Ephra, and with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against 
against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as the king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord of God, I shall not stand. It shall not come to pass for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the people of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramallah. And if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And so again, we see a couple of very interesting things being said here. First of all, he gives uh, God's word in response to that fear. And in the face of this, Ahaz, who is now the son of King Uzziah, who has died. By the way, King Uzziah has lived so long that this is why in Isaiah chapter 6, there is such grief. The best example I can give is if any of you have parents or grandparents who lived when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a president. When he died, people couldn't even imagine because he'd been a president for so long. Now we have term limits. You can only serve for eight years. But you know, there, there was never a time that most of the people could ever remember Uzziah was not king. Now, of course, you have Ahaz, who's his son, and he's not quite the, the, you know, the best king that they could have. But anyway, in the midst of all this, they want to again have a reminder of, indeed, that they should trust God. So they use kind of this physical representation. They go out to uh, this uh, particular place where the water is, and he's reminded that those who remain faithful to God will endure in the land. And, and interesting enough, those who choose to rebel against God, they will not be protected. And we're going to come back to that from secular history. We know that this prophecy, interesting enough, was fulfilled. In some ways, of course, we can see that Isaiah's own son, we just mentioned his name a minute ago, kind of embodies the hope. Because you have Isaiah and his son, you have God and his son, of course, Jesus Christ, who is the one perfectly faithful to God and stands as an encouragement. So you have kind of the physical representation of Isaiah's son and then the call eventually of God's son, Jesus, coming there as well. And so again, we see that at this point, it looks like Israel and Syria have the upper hand. They've got the armies. They're down below. They look like they're going to take Judah. That'll be the end of that. And so they seem to be in total control. But what we see here in verses 7 to 9 is they're just living on borrowed time. Now, we know a little bit more about this from history because, first of all, he receives a promise that it's only a matter of time before Israel and Syria will be destroyed. And we now know that from history. We know that, true to God's word, Syria was crushed within, what, three years after this prophecy was given. And then Israel, northern kingdom there, would fall ten years after that. And so we see that what was prophetic uh, actually comes to pass. And, of course, Ahaz and others have a chance to actually see that coming to fruition. Let's come to the last part, and that is starting in verse 10, probably one of the most famous passages in Isaiah 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. I'll come back to how this was sort of false piety, but we'll go on. And he said, Hear then, O house of Israel, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name, what? 
Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land between two kings will you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah and the king of Assyria. We go on, but you can get the point uh, that is being made here. And that is that, again, we see that uh, in verses 10 to 11... God offers to provide a sign or a confirmation. But uh, again, this would be an opportunity to say, let me even give you a sign so that you would know that indeed I will protect and preserve Judah. But what we see, as I mentioned, in kind of a show of false piety, Ahab refuses pretending, well, I'd never ask such a question of, the, of God. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting because another application would be, you know, how often do we waver in our faith and we're really even maybe looking for a sign, but then we say, well, no, I'll, I'll do it on my own, you know, and I've, this came from some of the material the church provided. How hospitable are we, even when we don't feel like welcoming neighbors, co-workers, or enemies in need of the gospel? How often do we think we are strong enough to improve our lives and develop virtue without the Holy Spirit? So there is kind of a warning here that you had kind of this false privacy. No, I don't need any kind of guidance from the Lord. I don't need any assurance from the Lord. And here I think sometimes there is a need for us to be humble and say, Lord, if you want to give me a sign, I will definitely take it. If you want to call me to be obedient, I'll be glad to be obedient. But even though he refuses a sign, of course, we see that we have that sign indeed. Uh, that is, of course, talking about the future of a life offered in the Messiah. And also we see that that is a sign from God and gives us an idea. So when Isaiah refers to and references a child born of a virgin, the actual Hebrew word there portrays like a young woman of marriageable age and so it's kind of a twofold message if it will because first of all you have Isaiah's son born of a young woman so there's kind of this physical representation of Isaiah's son but then it's looking ahead to the future birth of of course Jesus born of a virgin and so it's just I think a great illustration here as well this idea of Emmanuel of God with us would bear the penalty of judgment, as well as reveal the signs of God's grace and salvation. And through a virgin birth, living a sinless life, Jesus fulfills the clear promise here of God with us. A righteous king who knows how to refuse evil and pursue good. And if nothing else, again, the application for this particular part of the passage here is Jesus is our Messiah who grants salvation and grants grace to us, even as we face some of the trials of life. We don't have armies camped out already. Ready to destroy us, but we do have other kinds of trials that we need to face, and if nothing else, this is a passage just to remind us again that just as they were fearful of what the future might hold, God said, trust in me, and I will protect you, and I will provide for you. So if nothing else, that's a quick look at um, Isaiah chapter 7. Next week we'll get to another key passage in the book of Isaiah, and as you saw earlier, we'll also look at Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and some others. But in each case, we're looking at some of the major prophets, not to look at all of that, but to see what we can learn about the coming Messiah and about Jesus Christ through these Old Testament prophets. This will be a perfect parallel because now, as we saw today... 
Pastor Graham started us out in the book of Hebrews. Who is the book of Hebrews written to? Individuals that are Jewish believers who have needed to have perseverance. So you'll see some interesting parallels as we go through Hebrews in the sanctuary, as we go through the major prophets here in the examine class. I left enough time to try to answer two of the questions. So on the back here, you see the first one. What is the Fatula Gulen movement and charter schools and the Harmony schools? At this point, you've got to go, what is that, you know? And that's what we're going to try to answer that question because it was one that was submitted by somebody in the class here. And as we go along, you're going to see that maybe this has some significance. Uh, but first of all, let me try to explain what we're talking about. There's a man by the name of Muhammad Fatula Gulen who is a Turkish preacher. He's also a Muslim imam. Now, he's a different kind of Muslim than we're normally used to. We talk about most Muslims, about 80% of them are Sunni Muslims. They'll be the kind of Muslims you find in Turkey, Saudi Arabia, certainly in Egypt. Then you have about 15% of Muslims that are Shiite. Those are found primarily in the southern part of Iraq and in Iran. He's neither of those. He's a Sufi Muslim, which is one of the smaller groups. Sufi Muslims have given us the stories of the whirling dervish, the stories of um, Aladdin, of flying carpets. They tend to be more the mystical kind of Muslims. And so he is a Sufi imam, but he's also a political figure. He was the founder of the Gulan movement, which has primarily focused on education in Turkey and also tried to create kind of an interfaith dialogue. And so he's tried to do that in primary and secondary education. Now, he was very successful for a time in Turkey, but we'll come back to that in just a minute. And that is to say, this is not just something that Christians have been paying attention to. This is, and if you would like to watch it, it's available on YouTube, obviously, a 60 minutes of investigation into the Gulen movement. And part of it had to do with the fact that because he was a major figure in Turkey, now has come to the United States, uh, even the Trump administration has wondered whether or not they wanted to extradite him back to Turkey. What in the world is going on? Well, the Gulen movement has been a kind of a civil society group that's developed all sorts of schools, including one just down the street here on George Bush Tollway, which we'll talk about in just a minute, and, of course, all sorts of other schools here in the state of Texas. Uh, originally, he worked with the Turkish uh, uh, president, uh, Erdogan, but over time, they caught crossways. And a matter of fact, he's used some of the funds he's received from these charter schools to actually mount what many people think is even an attempt to overthrow what uh, Erdogan has been doing in Turkey. So as a result, he's on Turkey's most wanted terrorist list. And as I mentioned, the Trump administration has thought about whether or not to extradite him back. At this point, you're saying, okay, this is real interesting about this guy. How does that relate to what's going on in the state of Texas? Well, how it relates is this. You have what is known as the Gulen movement that has produced schools. Matter of fact, the largest producer of charter schools in America is the Gulen movement. 
Let me just take a couple of examples. Suzanne and I are going to be in Oregon in a couple of weeks, and if you go up to Oregon here, you will see that they have the Rose Festival, Rose uh, School Academy there, which is actually part of a charter school. If you go down here, you're going to see in the state of Texas what are called the Harmony Schools, and the Harmony Schools are pretty significant. Uh, the Harmony Public School System is the largest charter management organization in Texas. You have 48 different campuses right here, uh, you, uh, and we'll talk about some of those in just a minute. You know, you've got the Harmony School for Science and Innovation. You've got the Harmony School for Athletics and Science, Harmony uh, Business School, which we'll talk about in just a minute, and a number of others, and they're all associated with the Gulen religious movement. Now, if you watch the 60 Minutes piece, you'll also recognize that the faculty members for the Gulen movement have been brought over from Turkey, and most of them don't speak English that well. As a matter of fact, it's really kind of interesting to watch the 60 Minutes thing. But because they come over on the H-1B visa, uh, there seems to be, as we now have been able to investigate, that when they receive their paychecks, paid for by your tax dollars, by the way, because these are taxes that go to charter schools, they have sent a percentage back to Gulen himself, the Gulen movement, which has been kind of the big scandal. So that's how he's been able to fund his organization. Now, um, this is one organization that you might be familiar with. Anybody traveled uh, maybe on east on the George Bush Freeway when you get over to where Coit Road is? Anybody ever seen this building? Okay, well, now you know what I'm talking about. This is known as the Harmony School of business. It's just one of many of those. So again, again, you're saying, well, okay, this isn't just sort of hypothetical. These are groups that exist right here, even in our area, and I think illustrate exactly some of the questions that people have been asking. Do they do fairly well in terms of producing students? Yes, they've done relatively well in terms of academic performance, but of course, you've got to recognize that the foundation of this is Muslim, Sufi Muslim, which is very different than Shia. Muslim or Sunni Muslim, and of course there are just all sorts of controversies that have been surrounded here as well. This is an article that came from the Texas Tribune, which again acknowledged that the students oftentimes do fairly well in these charter schools, but there's just been a big question being asked about the fact that the greatest provider of charter schools in Texas and the greatest provider of charter schools in the country is the Gulen movement. And so you can see why there's been some questions about, you know, what is going on in that regard. And again, if you wanted to learn a little bit more about this, this was a documentary that was actually put together by those who were advocates for the public schools who have been very critical of the charter schools. And so it's a documentary that, if nothing else, wanted to point out some of the problems I, you know, again, we can go back and forth about what, whether we should have charter schools and all the rest. But the argument being made here is that you have, uh, in this case, they were talking about at that time when the uh, documentary came out, about 150 schools run by the Gulen movement, uh, bringing in more at that time, more than $500 million in revenue, enrolling about 60,000 students. And, of course, some of the arguments were, is this helpful and is this actually? 
actually doing a good job to help our and support our public schools. So this one wasn't just about the Gulan movement. It was about other things. What's happening in our charter schools? Are we siphoning money away from the public schools? But this uh, particular documentary received all sorts of awards because it was really looking at how we seem to be killing education in America. But interesting enough, you look at the subtitle, Charter Schools, Corruption, and the Gulan Movement. You know, So you can see that that's one of the reasons why people have been looking at this. Now, one of the reasons why I, I think this was asked is, well, do I want to put my kids in a public school? And do I want to put them in a charter school? But again, it's just something else to think about in terms of the Gulan movement. So if you'd like to know some more, I think the 60 Minutes, I'll give them good credit. This is one time I think 60 Minutes really did a good investigative report on this. And this documentary, if you'd like to see it, gives you a lot more information about the Gulan movement. And if nothing else, all you have to do is just drive down George Bush Tollway and uh, a reminder that, uh, and of course I can take you to other places in Dallas and San Antonio and Austin and all the places around the country and around the state in which you have the Gulan movement, uh, which is providing these various charter schools. So something to think about uh, if you wanted to know a little bit more. But in the interest of time, let me move on to one more. Again, why would I get all the tough questions? I guess after 10 years, I get nothing but tough questions, right? And this one, again, came from one of the people in the class who said, you know, just the other day, somebody asked him, you know, why doesn't the Bible mention these chakras? These are the energy points on the body. And you might say, okay, you've got to educate me again. What are chakras? Okay, well, if you're familiar at all with Eastern religion, um, the argument is, is that we have seven energy power points uh, from the base of our spine all the way to the tip of our forehead, and that these seven chakras actually are power energy points that can be released. Now, let me use one example. You ever heard about somebody uh, meditating on their belly button? Of course, the middle one is what is called the Manapura chakra. And so if you look at that, you can see that it uh, also has a word Ram and it has a number of other things associated with it. Now, the argument is, is that you can use any kind of yoga experiences to liberate the power. By doing certain kinds of things, you liberate the power from the Manapura Chakra. Or others who use what are called mantra meditation, they can use these mantras by calling out the name Ram. And that that allows you to release that power as well. Now, how in the world do we think about this from a Christian point of view? Well, first of all, Ram is supposedly the name of a Hindu god. As a matter of fact, if you've ever been around a Hare Krishna, you know, the Hare Krishna, Rama, Rama, they, they're chanting the names of Hindu gods. From a biblical point of view, what do you think might be taking place? They're calling on spiritual entities, and so that is the case. If you don't believe that, interestingly enough, one of the ideas of the chakras is, is that the energy is at the base of your spine like a coil up serpent. This is what's called serpent power, and by using various kinds of techniques, you release that coiled dominant energy through the seven chakras and reach a state of consciousness. The fact that you use a snake, does that give you a feel for, again, how to think about some of this? 
That should give you enough reason why the Bible doesn't refer to it, right? But let's go into it a little bit more detail. How do we think about that uh, biblically? And that is, first of all, these chakras play uh, supposedly uh, some kind of emphasis in medicine. And here's where I want to say that I think there's a difference. That is, I think there is good medical practice and saying that there is good evidence that say acupuncture works. But if you come from an Eastern point of view, you lay upon this an assumption about Eastern religion. You can remove the Eastern religion and still say that it works. And so I want to recognize that sometimes what happens is, is that people say, well, we can't do that because it's Eastern. Well, no, I, this was based upon, I think, a false view of body energies. But whether or not chakras exist, many people have found that acupuncture, for example, relieves pain. And so that is a physical benefit to that, which is independent of the spiritual philosophy. I know some of you in here have been involved in the martial arts. Now, martial arts have been taught in one way in terms of just being able to use various kinds of techniques to defend yourself or to render an individual um, uh, no longer being threatening. But there has also been an attempt to superimpose Eastern thoughts on it. That doesn't mean that learning how to kick or learning how to do yoga exercises ties you into Eastern thought, but there has been an attempt to put Eastern thought on top. Does that make sense? You know, I wouldn't necessarily talk about this to younger believers because I'd say I think you need to have some discernment first, but I think this is what's going on. And so the real danger, I think, in the, the idea of this idea of chakras is that there are spiritual overtones that are connected to it different kinds of yoga. One is called kundalini yoga, which means that which is coiled. Remember what was coiled? That's the serpent, okay? And kundalini is also the name of a goddess, by the way. And some have done this through various yoga exercises. Others have done this through mantra meditation. Okay, let's talk about that. Does that mean that I couldn't do yoga? No, yoga could be stretching exercises, but you can see how some people get into the eastern part of that and tie into other things that are not appropriate. We could say, some people say, what about meditation? Well, aren't we supposed to meditate on scripture? Yes, but what is the difference? Biblical meditation is meditating on God's word. Mantra meditation, just saying a same word again and again, opening your brain, opening your mind up to the spiritual forces of the universe. Do you see the difference? And so I think as mature people, we can say there is a difference between stretching exercises and getting involved in Eastern yoga. Does that make sense? There's a difference between doing, you know, martial arts and getting involved in the Eastern worship of that. Does that make sense? And once you separate those out, and I'm going to give you some books that I think do a very good job of doing that, you can see the potential dangers. Don't take my word for it. Um, some of the books I'm going to recommend give you some testimonies. I thought I'd just give you one. But this comes from a woman who became a Christian, but had really gotten involved in what she called mantra meditation. I'm starting to call it mantra meditation because when I just use the word meditation, people go, well, that's, can't we meditate on Scripture? So I use the distinctive. And so she uses it as well. She says mantra meditation is so very seductive because it generates a very powerful 
seemingly supernatural experience that can make one feel that they're actually encountering God. In other words, you can have this kind of spiritual experience when you go into that. If you, for example, go into transcendental meditation, you offer some fruit and some flowers uh, to this goddess, and then they give you a mantra, and you go into a kind of a deep state of saying this mantra time and time again, and it can give you kind of a spiritual experience. Her analysis is this. In hindsight, I believe that it was a true encounter. In other words, it wasn't a false experience. We really had an encounter that truly was, look at her word, supernatural. But the point is, the Bible tells us that Satan can masquerade as what? An angel of light. So the point is, I think one of the reasons why the Bible doesn't talk about things like chakras is because we probably, on this side of heaven, don't have the spiritual maturity and the discernment to figure all of that out. So the good philosophy is, when in doubt, don't. You know, stay away from some of that. But also we recognize that the, as I put it here, the spiritual experience is undeniably real. And it might even feel for an individual like they're connecting to the divine, but it's not of God. And so the Bible says we should reject spiritual messengers who claim to be from God. And notice how Paul says that in Galatians 1, that even if an angel were to give you a different gospel, you are to reject that, which I thought was very predictable if you think about that, because it was supposedly the angel Gabriel that gave to Muhammad what? Islam. And the angel Moroni supposedly gave the theology that now is today called Mormonism to Joseph Smith. So again, we are to be careful and to test the spirits. And I think really the message of Eastern mysticism is contrary to the gospel. So let me, just as I end here, mention some books, because you might say, okay, I'm kind of into some of this. I'd like to know a little bit more about that. I'd like to maybe see how to think about this biblically. So the first book I would recommend is the book by my good friend Doug Groteis. Doug Groteis used to be on probe staff. He is now a professor at Denver Seminary. He wrote a series of best-selling books for the InterVarsity Press called Masking the New Age, this book which I recommend called Confronting the New Age, and another book later on called Revealing the New Age Jesus. He also has a lot of this in his book on Christian apologetics, but this middle book really tries to attempt to help you think through, well, what about biofeedback? What about hypnosis? What about yoga? How do, how do I think about some of these New Age techniques from a biblical point of view? It's an InterVarsity Press book, pretty easy to get a hold of, or if not, you can borrow a copy off my shelf. We're glad to get it to you. And so that would be one book to think about if you'd like to know. The second book is by an, an, another former probe staff member. Just sort of happens they've barely written some very good books. Pat Zuckerin. The reason I mention that is Pat grew up as a Buddhist in Hawaii and became a Christian. And then uh, has his master's degree from Dallas Theological Seminary in Theology. Has his Ph.D. from Norm Geisler Southern Evangelical Seminary. And this is a series 
series of essays he's written about Eastern philosophy, Eastern thought, as well as other articles by Probe staff members, God, Eternity, and Spirituality. And so that is available. And I may even have extra copies of that at Probe if somebody needs one. But again, you can find it online. Of course, you can get a Kindle and read it just two minutes after we finish this as well. And then I got some of our martial arts kids here. You know, everybody's raising their hand. Nick's raising his hand. James. And this book I would recommend by Keith Yates. Keith Yates is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He did his master's theology at the seminary on the martial arts and how to think about it from a Christian point of view. Uh, He served for a time as the president of, let me get this right, it was the American Karate and Taekwondo Association. And he still is the chairman of the board of the Gospel Martial Arts Association, which is that group that's in Indianapolis, and has really thought about how to apply a Christian point of view to the martial arts. And so, if nothing else, just wanted you to recognize there's some great resources. And um, if you have any more questions, can we get an easy one this time, next time, but nothing else? Uh, each week I try to do some Ask Kirby questions and try to give you some reasonable answers so that you can apply your biblical faith to every area of life. Parker?